In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 363 this week on the show we've gathered together a journalist roundtable to talk about this week's meta connect event and specifically the keynote address that introduced the quest pro headset Joining are Scott Stein of CNET, who had some serious hands-on time with the new device, Todd Martins of the LA Times, who covers games and themed entertainment for LA's daily newspaper, and the one and only Kent Bai of the Voices of VR podcast, who plans on running this convo in the Voices of VR feed as well, which means we've got a crossover episode. But before we get into the show, yes, there are still tickets available for the Denver Immersive Gathering coming up on November 4th through 6th. The team actually found like a handful more tickets. There was like an accounting error. And so now we've got just under 40 left. This is your chance to join over 200 creatives and professionals who have already registered for an event that is unlike any other. And no pro Patreon backers still have access to a $50 discount, which takes the ticket back to its original price, That means it's just $150 down from the already bargain price of $200 for the whole weekend, just in case uh, you don't want to become a backer of the pod, but you're listening and and you've got the money to go. Anyway, um, the schedule surveys have been sent out and they are due back on the 19th. So if you've been thinking about it, now is the time to jump in so that you have the best chance of getting your your ideal schedule for this event. Uh, Check the show notes for more details, and I highly encourage people to get their surveys in because uh, I'm going to take like a day off from my vacation to do the schedule. So help me out here, everybody, like get it done. Uh, That would that'd be really nice. Uh, Otherwise, you got to wait for your schedule for when I get back from vacation because I'm only going to take the one day off to do it there. Uh, Finally, thanks to our latest backers, Aaron Battaglio. Christopher Barton, and Carl, Uh, we now stand at 387 backers, which means we're just 13 backers away from 400, which is our goal for the month, which is a little wild, but I still think we can do it, uh, even though I'm going to take like a break for the better part of a week. Look, uh, I say this every week, but it's serious. No pro can't continue to be all that has become in this media environment. It's just not going to be possible without your direct support. This is the only financial support that I get on a regular basis. Like there's little things here and there, but this this is it. And if you look at the Patreon, you're like, how do you live? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 400 would be great for this month. We need a lot more. So if you can, please $5 a month, means everything to me uh if times are tight (laughs) for you like they are for me um take a moment to drop us a review on itunes or on your podcatcher of choice itunes is really great uh help spread the word uh however you can help spread the word about what we do uh means again everything we grow by word of mouth 
and word of mouth alone. And so as you tell a friend about our resources, whether you tell them about the podcast or you tell them about everything immersive or you tell them about no pro, whatever it might be, if everyone who listened to the show uh, did that this week, um, it would be a huge, huge benefit for us. Uh, just let people know. If nothing else, let people know about Everything Immersive, uh, everythingimmersive.com, where, where they can find their own next great immersive adventure. We, we make all this stuff for you and try and make it as useful as possible. Also, and I'll link this in the show notes, uh, if you've got people who are, are, are wondering what, what is immersive experience, what is all this stuff, what is all the terminology, if you go over to the Immersive Experience Institute website this week, we have a new immersive definitions page. I haven't pushed it out too far yet because I got to get some graphics onto it before it looks okay on social media. But as a little preview, you can find it in the show notes. Uh, we'll do a big push around that next week. And when you see the graphics go up, go ahead and, and help share that around as well. Again, all that sharing, it, it, it's silly, but it really helps. Um, also, if you have a company and uh, you want to help support us, um, we are looking for some community partners who are up for working out special deals for our Patreon backers, kind of a, a mutual benefit society here. Uh, go ahead and hit me up at noah at nopersinium.com for details and looking forward to hearing from you. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Ari Hurston, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Balthazar, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all. And now, without further ado, our roundtable about the Meta Connect event. <laughs> As you know from the top of the show, this week is all about Meta Connect. Specifically, we're going to be diving deep on what was announced at the keynote. And to do that, we've brought together some of my favorite journalists in the space to share their notes, both from the keynote itself and from what they've been seeing behind the scenes. Uh, some of them have gotten to play with some of this stuff, uh, which is very exciting. Joining us today are... Scott Stein, CNET. Uh, my name is Kent Bai. I do the Voices of VR podcast. And uh, I'm Todd Martins. I write about uh, video games, interactive entertainment for the Los Angeles Times. All right. We're going to follow sort of the arc of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's keynote uh, because eh, why not? Uh, and the first thing I wanted to note, and I think this is probably why I'm following the arc of the keynote, was we saw at the beginning of this event, both the keynote and by extension, the whole event that there was a little like a uh, title card at the very beginning that was basically saying, Hey, we're going to talk about stuff that are not wild projections, but like it's speculative. So if perchance you're a shareholder, don't make any bets on this. That's the subtext of what they were doing. And I thought that was really interesting because it sort of framed everything that was to come as this was a presentation for shareholders, as opposed to being this is a presentation for consumers. And yet, of course, because it's all being done in public, because it's being streamed, a lot of it sort of hit everyone as a consumer show. That's how people tend to interpret it. Not everyone's bringing their stockholder game. Um, 
but it really colored how I was viewing everything. And I don't know, did it do the same for you guys? Like how, before we crack into the details, what was your overall impression of, of this, you know, meta connect this time out? Scott, let's, let's kick it off with you. Yeah. Well, it's weird because I got to do a field trip where I got to see some things and that was interesting. Then when I actually watched the presentation, it felt very dull and, (laughs) and, and, um, and I thought, oh, based on what I saw, I wouldn't have told the story this way. But, you know, I, th- I feel I don't know if part of it was a reaction last year when the metaverse uh, goals were, were unveiled more. There was so much pie in the sky animated stuff. What I took away was there were a lot of human beings this time. It was mm-hmm. a lot of like full body people walking down hallways and I, I felt it felt very deliberate to me for whatever reason. Maybe they wanted to get more real, kind of show themselves, but it felt like a total flip. And they didn't, I think it went on too long in that regard where, where it, it, it kind of deadened the, um, the feel of it. Todd, how about you? What was your vibe off of it? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of struggled um, trying to figure out like who, who they wanted the audience exactly to be for this. Um, you know, because it wasn't a very heavy sort of consumer play. You know, they did start out with games, but very quickly sort of moved on from games and, you know, sort of made the pitch uh, to uh, businesses uh, while giving us a little bit of a glimpse of some future tech that, you know, I would love to hear those who've demoed it, you know, talk about. But I think just from, you know, somebody who covers interactive entertainment, I think, uh, you know, if you were looking to you know the MetaQuest as a, a games device, an entertainment device, um, there wasn't a lot for you to sort of uh, chew on here. Yeah. We're going to drill down into that just a little bit in a second, but before we do that, Kent, what was your general vibe off of off of the keynote? Well, this is my ninth event, uh, starting with the Oculus Connect, and so this is kind of evolution to now the Meta Connect, and so. This year was the most enterprise focused of all the other previous connects that I've seen so far. And, you know, there's a Simon Wardley, he talks about like this kind of evolution through different phases where there's a genesis of an idea, then you go into a custom bespoke enterprise application, and then you go into the consumer market, and then it gets into mass ubiquity. But in some sense, Meta has kind of skipped over the enterprise um, section for many, many, many years. They've ignored it. And They've sort of had something for a while, then they actually killed off their quest for business. Um, so they've kind of been trying to do this pure, kind of skip straight to the consumer play by dumping billions of dollars into kind of creating the market. And I think this, I see them kind of taking a step back and trying to actually shore up their business into actually engaging with business. They've, I'd say, my impression is that they've kind of failed in their previous iterations, and now they're kind of humbled in a way of trying to take a more open approach by maybe perhaps collaborating with other big partners like Microsoft that was announced. So that was my take is that they're maybe taking a step back their stock price is getting crushed. Uh, maybe they're trying to shore up their business of, of maybe not trying to skip straight to the consumer market, but actually have a viable enterprise market. Um, and I think I have questions over how well they're going to do with that uh, based upon their past behaviors, but I think it's yet to be seen. All right. Yeah, I, I I'm on a similar page to you there. And I, I really like this idea of like, you know, they tried to leap back forward. Now they're kind of stepping back. It's, it's, they're dosy doing a lot here. Let's follow the arc of this. Uh, and let's start with games. Todd, I'm going to let you take point here. I, I think like you, 
I, I was kind of, I was sort of shocked. Maybe not like you, you're going to tell me what you, what you felt, but I was sort of shocked at how little they showed in games because so far over the past few years, we've kind of been conditioned to expect some announcements, some significant announcements as part of this particular show. What was your take? Yeah, I was definitely a surprise. I mean, definitely with, you know, especially since we've heard, um, you know, that some of these games and some of these apps have been doing pretty well. I was kind of expecting a little bit more uh, to lean in on that sort of area. Um, I think most people, sort of in sort of the general consumer sort of audience um, consider the Quest, you know, a gaming device um, primarily. Um, so I was expecting, um, if not games, even a bigger presence on, on on health and sort of fitness, which they did touch on too very briefly. Um, and, and that's honestly primarily what I use my Quest for these days, more than games even. Um, you know, so it was very kind of quick, overview of like, here's a couple things coming, here's a couple updates to some things that uh, you already known about. Um, you know, they announced a release date for Among Us uh, VR. I believe that was uh, early November, uh, November 10th, I think they said. Um, and, you know, I think that looks like a very fun experience, you know, sort of being an eye level in that cartoonish uh, light sort of inviting world. I think that'll be, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to competing in that. I think it'll be uh, and approachable sort of device game for a lot of people. Um, and then they also touched on, you know, a little bit of Iron Man VR coming to the Quest. I think that was what they led with. Um, but that game has already been out um, yeah, for that, PlayStation that's a, VR. That's a port, right? Like it, it, port, felt, like, it felt like the, the more yeah. significant thing was them saying like, hey, we bought Camouflage, Correct. by the way, right? Yes. Um, so yeah, the, the announcement basically they required this other team. So, yeah, but not necessarily hinting at anything they're working on or looking forward. Um, and, you know, the Iron Man experience, uh, it was well done. Um, you know, I haven't used my PlayStation VR in, in a long time since I upgraded to the PS5. So, um, but, um, you know, so that's that was one thing they announced. And then, uh, then we got some updates to some other stuff. Uh, a quick look at a very teaser of a game called Behemoth um, from the, uh, the Walking Dead uh, Saints and Sinners team, I believe. And um, but not really any information on that. Just sort of a mysterious, misty, foresty sort of game. And uh, I think that's sort of a survival sort of VR game was my impression. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But yeah, very little. I mean, that was kind of that was kind of it. Unless there was uh, somebody thought there was a big game sort of preview that I'm missing beyond the announcement later that we'll get to. I'm sure. But you know that they'll be bringing Xbox Cloud Gaming. Um, to the uh, meta quest sort of world. Yeah, I felt it felt when it comes to gaming as a whole, that actually felt like the most significant as a gamer, that felt like the most significant thing that they announced was like, hey, if you're a cloud Xbox cloud person, congratulations. Although I I still don't I still don't know if I'm I mean, I'll I'll give it a try, but I don't know if that will ever be the primary way that I play my Xbox stuff. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but it, it was sort of just a dual check mark of like, oh, and here's another device that Xbox Cloud is on. That feels like a more significant thing for Microsoft than it does for for Meta. Um, do you guys I think? A, oh, go for it. Ken. A, yeah, I was just going to say that they did mention that Population One was going to have some user generated maps, and they did at the top mm -hmm. say that the the multiplayer kind of social apps were the the highest apps, and they actually gave out a direct shout out to VRChat, which I was surprised because they don't usually 
talk about you know VR chat or Rec Room too much. They really try to focus on their own social yeah. metaverse mm-hmm. apps. But they did say that the most popular apps were the multiplayer apps. Um, and so they also kind of gave a shout out to YouTube VR as having more multiplayer capabilities coming in the in the future. Yeah, there's there's definitely some positioning there going on. But the whole thing felt to me because they were talking about how much money was being made. Like I was I was more in a mode of like, oh, this feels like a WWDC Apple event and not an E3 uh, a Gamescom consumer focused event like this this didn't feel like a product launch this felt like we're going to talk to developers now about why you should be on our platform and there hadn't been a lot of they i felt like they just didn't set up what this event was really going to be for everybody so they all kind of came in going like oh where's the new stuff and and it was much more future focused i think to that point like you said about um for speaking to developers maybe and i'm not a developer but you know so developers correct me if i'm wrong on this but i expected maybe they would talk more about new tools for developers in gaming you know i thought maybe is there something new and interesting that games would be able to do especially if they're aiming for more social um so in that sense too i felt disappointed like i didn't i felt it would have been better off maybe not to announce games at this at all because i think by announcing them and having them feel lackluster i i was more aware of them because there are regularly interesting games coming out on you know on on quest 2 all the time but this made me yeah but this made me feel like oh wow that wasn't interesting so maybe just don't talk about it i'd rather hear about what they're doing to make future games more more meaningfully different rather than repeating forms and genres do you guys and we'll move on from games in a second to, to speed bump on fitness but do you guys feel like by by having it be lackluster by also not punting, by not saying we're going to have a games event in November or December or January, come back around in January, and we're going to have a much more robust event as part of this keynote that they've opened a door for Sony, uh, who have put a lot of headsets into people's hands over the years to maybe start running with the crown. They have had other events where they've had other gaming focused events where they do all their gaming announcements where they've announced things like Grand Theft Auto as an example that wasn't mentioned here. Uh, so they actually do have a separate event where they do focus more on the games right. than, than this event. But they didn't billboard that here, which I thought from a from a messaging standpoint and from a marketing standpoint, I thought it was weird to not say, oh, hey, we'll be back around, you know, put a pin in it. Here's, here's, here's a couple of notes, but we'll, we'll come back around in, in a few weeks. I mean, I think even last year they did a, they, I think expressly last year correct me if i'm wrong in the keynote they showed a few things but then said hey we're gonna have a games event later in november you know um and and it just feels like with with sony's headset coming uh for ps5 it just feels like this this missed opportunity i felt pretty surprised too like i had to try playstation vr2 as well in, in september and um i was surprised when i demoed that um, for all that I really liked it, that the games that I got to demo were mostly uh, ports, you know, or updates. <laughs> and it's interesting because I, I, it's either there's a chess game going on here, or maybe it's like um, getting the ball rolling for new content is is sort of being a little strange right now. Because I, I would expect there are great opportunities for them to push the platform, uh, a lot more graphics and more, I can, we can get into this later, but 
more consistent use of eye tracking because it's mm. interesting what Meta had said about eye tracking on, on the Quest Pro. But I think that, yeah, I do feel like there's a big opportunity, but then I guess it's a matter of like what, what developers find worthwhile, like with the amount of headsets that the Quest has versus like the PlayStation base, but how much of it is worth bringing into VR? I don't know. That's an interesting question. All right, let's slide over real quick to fitness. They did a fitness bump. Uh, fitness has been a, a big thing on the quest. Uh, I admit I, I'm, I'm not doing Supernatural as much as I should be, meaning I don't think I've done it in about four weeks, uh, and I feel bad about that. But they did announce that knee strikes are coming, so I'm excited about that. Even though it's, I believe, that acquisition still held up by the FTC, right? Or the SEC or whichever one of those covers that so like they don't own within yet if memory serves but they're they're on their way to maybe buying it um i was sort of struck uh well well how did the fitness section strike any of you in particular was was there anything that stood out i got a note but i'll leave it to you guys first the active pact is something like a, a peripheral that they're going to be selling and for me the uh the fact that they have knee strikes means that there could be kind of the first viable way of getting full body tracking in in a way that is a way that's not occluded. And so I think there's a larger story there in terms of the AI and the prediction for how some of this stuff that with the knee strikes is going to tie into their more full body tracking as they move forward. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was mainly wondering about the, the, oh, sorry. I was, yeah, I was just going to say, I was mainly wondering about the knee body and sort of if that was something that I was going to be able to, was that going to require another? Because they were, they didn't really say how that was working and the tech behind that. And um, so if, if that was going to require another peripheral or, um, if that was something that was just going to work in the headset by sort of guessing our own sort of movement. Uh, they, they did say there's some AI papers that are out there that were from, uh, reality research or the reality mm -hmm. labs, which basically shows them being able to do full body pose estimation by just the, the cameras on the quest. And so I think the AI sort of part of that is on the way, it's just kind of like doing it in a way that is able to kind of match people. They said during the presentation that it's going to be coming first to Horizon Worlds, but I, it's probably actually coming first to some of these different fitness apps to bring in more full body interactions, which I think is probably going to be one of the more compelling use cases at the beginning, and then eventually try to do some higher end stuff that has some of that AI research that's been happening um, kind of mature to the point where it's able to be deployed as a product. It's going to be interesting to watch people figure out like which way they need to tilt their head in order to simulate a knee strike. You know, <laughs> someone will figure it out real quick, I imagine. Yeah, I was expecting a, uh, in this particular area a lot more mm. because I have seen it's just been such a big part of I, I think where what Met has had success on with this. I think it's been a very unique landscape. People have really gotten into the idea of fitness on this, but not everybody. I think it needs work. I think the um, integration with Apple Health was super interesting earlier this year. Mm. I, I kind of expected more like per like a Fitbit approach. Like I thought, are they going to really run with this? You know, what else can they do? What else can they enable? Um, thinking of it as a fitness and health platform, or whether yeah. or not people want that, how they can work in other partners, into that um, other uh, other types of data, um, and, I, and I don't know what the answer is to why a lot. It just seemed more like yes, we do fitness and health, and it, it was not much more. I mean, that the Fit Pack felt just like something you could already get, but they're but they're making it. And hey, then, um, you know, Power A yeah. makes this, and now we're going to make it too. 
you know? Right. <laughs> it's like, and that, gotta, gotta, gotta love it when you're following Power A on your, uh, nothing against Power A. You guys, you guys do solid well, groundbreaking work all the time. <laughs> it's true. And then, um, I don't know, extending to like comments made on uh, that Mark Zuckerberg has made the past year about, uh, and, and to see that about fitness and health. And I, we I didn't thought, get a fencing. Um, we didn't get know, a fencing demo. All that, all that hype two weeks demo. ago. We didn't get a fencing demo. What up, dude? I didn't get a fencing demo either. No, no fencing. I never, I didn't see any fencing. And I just thought there'd be ways that new sensors or other things or, you know, some sort of a tracker. I know there's no word of a smartwatch, but there's nothing even like, um, you know, Vive trackers. There's nothing, there's nothing like that. Uh, Pico even announced that they're going to be making these tracker accessories for fitness. That's more interesting. Um, so I really felt like what's, you know, why, why isn't that here? Well, and I mean, maybe some of it has to do with the fact that they haven't closed the acquisition on within yet for supernatural. And like, I figure once they've done that supernatural is so good, um, that, that having that be the flagship, I mean, it was already sort of in there as the flagship in this section of, of the, of the event. But I thought it was also weird that you had something like Kree's rides to power, which was a launch title with Q1. Um, being sort of centered at times in the sizzle reel it it made the platform feel musty to me like why are we showing off something from a i mean i haven't been catch keeping up with like what's been being added to creed maybe i'm wrong but that just felt really weird to me that of all the things to show off was hey here's a game from what is it four years ago now uh and it's still important to this whole fitness thing we've got going on one confusing on. thing to me is that, and if I just kind of speculate, like Beat Saber is, is such a key universal thing for them. And it's a, they keep mm-hmm. going to it. They show the mixed reality demo. I'm still surprised they haven't built off of Beat Saber and added more fitness modes and other things to that. Like that seems like the platform to build off of. I know they're acquiring lots of other companies, but they could also very well be building out Beat Saber to be doing that, making that their franchise for a lot of different things. It's, it's again, that question mark I have of like, you have that market, you have people who are using that beyond new music packs. How about thinking out outside the box with that a little bit? Yeah. Well, let's close off fitness here and let's open up uh, what for me was kind of surprising in certain dimensions, which was the productivity chunk. We know Meta has been chasing, you know, VR for work. They're They're really excited about it. I don't know how excited I am about it, but they're really excited about it. And and it, but it never felt as serious as when the CEO of Microsoft showed up. Like for me, the entire keynote turned on a dime when Satya showed up. Cause I was like, Oh, this is, this is real now. Like when they started talking about enterprise solutions and locking down the devices, I was like, Oh, this is the kind of thing that you see when when a company gets very very serious about pursuing enterprise um kent what did what was your vibe on on this whole section and do you think people will be doing a lot of excel in vr in the near future <laughs> well i was surprised to see satya satya from microsoft there um and i think it's also a, a bit of a open or like a welcome move because um boz did a bit of a, a q a after the keynote, and he said that you know, someone asked about enterprise. One of the things he said is that they need to collaborate more with independent software vendors, ISVs. And I feel like maybe there's a because they had the thing that was confusing to me is that 
first of all, they started late on Enterprise, uh, just historically, and then they had it, and then they killed it off because a lot of this focus that they had on a lot of their kind of pivot towards like privacy policies that are not really all that great for enterprise. And so you end up seeing like the entire, like no one that's using uh, VR for medical use cases, for example, is using a quest because it's just not HIPAA compliant. Uh, very little education applications because it's not FERPA compliant. So then all of a sudden they're announcing all this stuff, but they haven't really kind of launched even their full relaunch of their quest for business um, section. So I think that's they said that's coming, but you know they're kind of launching this MetaQuest Pro in the absence of having all these other things in place. But I think you know one of the other things that, that Zuckerberg said both at the end of this is one of their values of moving more towards this open ecosystem um, as one of their key values, uh, but also in the interview that he did with Alex Heath was kind of this question as to whether or not open or closed ecosystems are going to win. Um, and in the interview with Alex Heath, he said that you know, with the mobile market, you can see that iOS is a clear winner and it's a pretty closed platform and that Zuckerberg wants to have an open platform. And so he's saying a lot of the rhetoric of wanting to have an open platform. But the thing that I keep coming back to is that, you know, there's kind of this conflict of interest that Meta constantly has between cultivating an open ecosystem and developing their own first party applications. So they'll always be sort of talking about the multiplayer social apps, and then they'll always sort of talk about the horizon worlds or they'll be talking about all these sort of open platforms that they're trying to cultivate for their um, all these platforms. And then they'll say, okay, the, the Horizon the workrooms uh, that they are working on. So there's this kind of thing that is this tension between like Meta want to own and control their first party apps, but also enabling the third party applications by having open ecosystems. So this collaboration with Microsoft is interesting because it is a bit of a, a conceding of some of that power over to other entities like maybe Accenture uh, taking the lead on some of these things. Um, and hopefully they'll, or even there's they'll a partnership with Zoom, right? Like they were like, yeah. oh, and, and you'll be able to like have your yeah. avatar in Zoom, right? It's almost like our avatars everywhere, you know, like there, there feels like a core play there of Facebook being like all Facebook is how you manifest your digital identity in all, in all spaces online, which kind of right. runs alongside login, right? Like your avatar is your login, is your Facebook, right? Yeah, it's those things like that. Like, do they want to try to own the avatar platform? It's a little unclear as to what their strategy is. And maybe that's the part of my takeaway is that it's it's really kind of a muddled strategy. And that's why it's so clear because they, they don't even are for sure what their strategy is. And so you kind of have this, like if they were to really have this as an enterprise launch, I would expect it to have a, like more stuff ready to actually launch rather than say, oh, we're going to be launching this next year. Um, you know, our, our quest for business is going to be launching next year, but we're announcing all these partnerships right now. Scott, you got to see a lot on, on your trip. Do, from what you saw, does the strategy feel as muddled uh, as, as what Kent was reading from the keynote and everything after? Well, it definitely seems like everything that, you know, what I got to try Quest Pro, the overwhelming feeling I got was more akin to HoloLens than VR. And and I and I think it's very much the sign of like how the demos were constructed, but also where where I think this product is aiming for. It's it seems very much headed for the HoloLens Magic Leap landscape, which is a landscape of AR headsets that nearly nobody has tried. Um compared to where people have used VR and possibly is like a more achievable landscape for them. Although it's interesting online, there are all sorts of comments going back and forth about, you know, 
the dangers of using pass through in the field or other things like there are drawbacks. But going back to what you said, I think that that then with Microsoft then connects a lot with me where, you know, I, in Microsoft seems to be moving into a consumer glasses partnership with Qualcomm uh, is HoloLens kind of being like sunsetted. I have no idea, but, um, but, you know, Microsoft wanted to be multi-platform with mesh. They talked about that last year. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be very much, the, you know, not a new move for Microsoft, but another shoe dropping. And then, Meta is accepting that and going to what Kent said, like, I think the challenge is going to be, I think all companies want to do like work with all the things that you have in this world only on blank, you know, like, (laughs) and and I think that's like Apple does that too. And um, this is like the great question of open versus closed, which is like, it's the, it's a yes. And I think with all these companies that some things will work and other until they don't work. And um, where interfaces I don't know how to say this, but it's like where interface meets identity is where things are getting weird. Cause like Mm. you used to work on a device and just kind of open a bunch of apps and not think so much about your identity, but you were manifesting in things. Now that becomes a part of the interface much more. And I don't, I don't think companies have really thought that through as much as it needs to be. I think that's a, I think that's a really great point. And, you know, privacy issues are tied up into that. Uh, authentic authenticity issues are tied up into that. You know, like, do you belong, you know, do you have control of this document or not? Um, is someone impersonating you? Uh, we see that on the social apps when someone hacks someone's account, right? Can we really trust it? The whole fact that there are verified accounts in the first place, all of these things are kind of tied up together. And, the whole open close thing, and Todd, I'm gonna I'm gonna slide over to you for a second because I, I want to get your sense on this whole you know VR for business, uh, VR for productivity as a whole. But I've got a little bit, just a touch of a cynical read on the open versus closed uh, pivot that's happening right now with with Meta, which is I feel like less like it's a, a deep commitment on a value level and more like hey. You know what story everyone always tells about Apple versus everybody else? It's open versus closed. And we know Apple is sniffing around and spent a lot of money to enter this market. Whether they do or not is a big question, right? Um, I can imagine a world where Apple just passes on making a headset after all that R&D because they're the richest company that's ever been. And they were just like, oh, we don't want to fire up the factories. Um, But by positioning themselves as we're the open because we know Apple is going to be the closed, even as Meta has acquired like all of these content studios, all of these game studios, like to the point where I'm almost like, are there any real, you know, heavy hitter, you know, VR game studios that aren't in-house at Meta at this point? There's probably like, what, a handful of them. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't know if I buy it as like a great philosophical uh, quest and more as a here's our marketing story about why we're different from Apple as a preventative measure. Maybe I'm being too cynical. I don't know. I think that there's something I see in the landscape and I see companies like Apple doing this a lot where um, they'll partner with somebody to do something. And then later on, 
they'll make it themselves. And like oh, classic, yeah. I I wonder too with Meta is that part of it too? Like sometimes you don't have the solution yet, so you're partnering with other companies until then you do have the solution and then you're not. Or or maybe you you know you you trumpet your own or I don't know. I I just think it's like, but that goes back to the interplay of like part what you know what is it? I agree. I'm I'm similarly cynical. It's like you have partnerships, but then there's companies always want to kind of have their own control over it or their own thing. It's always a a strange game. Todd, before we bury productivity and, and get into sure. the pro, uh, you know, we're really following the keynote now because it's like half hour in, we haven't even talked about everyone really wants to talk about. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, any, what, do you think we're going to be doing a lot of office work business in the, and I think this really plays into like the, the, the use case for the pro as well. Like is, is VR the future of work, Todd? You know, if it is the future of work, I think it's probably um, a few, a little further out than even uh, Meta is even pro- projecting. Um, I think, you know, as, as a journalist, as a writer, um, it's probably not the future of, of my work, um, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't, you know, use cases for it and applications for it. You know, I, I write about a lot about theme parks and theme park design, um, and I could definitely see aspects of you know, that kind of design work and that architectural work and that sort of experiential um, sort of work. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about the price point, but at $1,500, you know, it's not something that, you know, I don't see individual uh, employees buying. It would have to be something that would probably have to be bought, you know, by the company um, itself to give to its staffers. So I think at least for a while, um, it's going to be you know, industries where sort of having like a virtual or sort of a 3D sort of model um, is vital to doing your job. So I, I don't necessarily see it um, a mass um, a mass sort of uh, jump to it in the near future. All right, let's start talking about this hardware, the Quest Pro. Scott, you got hands-on time with it. Um, t- tell us a story. How was it? Does it feel good? Is it interesting? Is it fun? What about those little cameras on the on the on the on the controllers? Should people like upgrade to those? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to to break down. And I basically saw I saw six. It's demos. like the Gillette of cameras too. It's like oh, like five, <laughs> jumping to five. No, it is. Well, even yeah. the controller with the cameras kind of looks like a razor or something. Yeah. Um, when you hold from the side, uh, they were. It was very set up like a you know to, to tell you what it was like in that space. You know, I went to the headquarters. Um, I, I went to Meta Reality Labs uh, in in Redmond, where the research group is. A couple of like nondescript buildings, and we got a very controlled, you know, kind of tour. Which I was trying to talk about the first part was in a set of like a little mini E three type of thing where there were six demo spaces that were all set up, and we got run through each one of them. And um, and then I got to look at the you know headset on a table, but I basically spent time you know, hour and a half or so, or two hours, like in, in the headset doing those things. And first of all, the fit was very, like I said, it's very hollow lens. Like I'm used to, and also I'm used to other ones with the battery in the back. It fit over my glasses. So it just kind of, you know, it didn't lift up like a hollow lens, mm. but, um, which would have actually been nice, but it just, it, it, you know, you tighten it and it went on very easily. It was surprisingly open at the sides, which at first I was like, what's going on there? But it does come in these little side blocker things, and you can buy a larger blocker. That was and, the main thing maybe, when I first saw a picture of it. I was yeah. so like confused and concerned by 
I was just like, what are they doing? And and now it makes sense. And thank goodness for the magnetic light blockers. Yes. Well, and I don't know to that point how good it is as a VR headset, because I didn't really have a lot of demos that were like that. And that might be telling. And it also might be where they're positioning this. So it's hard to tell until we do the review. And, um, but, but the, but the demos all seem to capitalize on the light exposure in that what I thought was really interesting is that you got this pass-through camera technology, which I've seen on other types of tech. I got to spend time with um, with the Vario XR3, which is very hard to set up at home, but it's a and it's a super expensive headset, but that had a, a really high-resolution scan of your outside world with, with cameras and would put things in it. That, it, it achieves a similar type of effect, but with lower-resolution color cameras, so it's better than the Quest 2, but but worse than, you know, definitely worse than your eyesight, but you kind of adjust to it. And then you drop things in. So it's it's depth scanning the space like an AR headset. Um, and and I couldn't tell to to what effect over a Quest 2, but it definitely seemed better. You know, a painting depth painting VR. I walked over and there was an easel in the corner of the room. And you could do this with Quest 2 with with pass-through, but it, it looked looked better here. Um grabbing things and putting them on a wall. So, you know, recognizing space structure and things like that. Um, and I think that what was interesting is that the um, the field of view with the exposed area on the side made it feel like I was lowering like a, a lens. Mm. You know, it made it feel more like it was in the space. It kind of created this aura of reality in my peripheral vision. So I thought it was kind of a clever uh, trick that it did. And so how does that that compare to say the feeling of having a HoloLens or a magic leap on where, where the objects, because you've got, uh, there's no occlusion on terms of the actual reality. Things are, you know, being, you know, hologrammed in front of you as it were on, on the device, but does it, does it feel like the same or, or maybe like even a fuller version of that? I think it's a trade-off. I think you get mm. advantages over one versus the other. You know, uh, the 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 one thing is that you're not seeing the actual real crisp world around you. But the thing about AR that's always bugged me is that you get this kind of Ghostbusters thing, you know, yeah. where it's like, or the, you know, the haunted mansion where objects are are glowing real. You know, that they're, they're not only are they translucent, but they definitely seem to glow. Everything's and, a um, ghost. Everything. Yes, everything's a Pepper's ghost. ghost, and you sort of have to deal with that. It's certainly never going to seem photoreal. What's interesting about the pass through is not only do you get opaque things, but um, the Magic Leap Two can do a bit of opacity, but it's kind of like an optical trick that they're doing. Um, but you, you get some, uh, you get some, you get opacity, and things fit, feel a little more fluid to me as a result of that. But you're trading off a, a slightly f- a fuzzier background. But, but it depends, I guess, on what you're looking for. I guess if you want heads up stuff in a real environment where you have to do mission critical stuff, you probably want the the Pepper's ghost got hovering and guiding you. But if you're trying to like do some 3D modeling work and you just don't want to like trip over things, I would think that the pass through is a far better way to go. Um, yeah, to so tell it, point it, earlier, it, like, yeah. like, you doing like theme park 3d modeling or i was just thinking about i could see people on like the volume where they shoot the mandalorian wearing one of these so so they you see what's going on you know in the in the stagecraft setup uh you know before they roll it out to the rest of the room and then they roll it out to the rest of the room and everything matches up right because you don't need 
you don't need mechanical levels of precision, right? Like that's can that's some of the chatter that we've seen online is like, oh, for safety reasons, you wouldn't want to use this, right? That's what some people have been saying. Yeah, well, I, I think there's from when I think take a look at it, I didn't have a chance to do hands on, so I was basically scouring the web to watch all the reviews, read everything, and try to. I got access to the press kit and I was reading through it. I think it's worth mentioning uh, the information did a report a while back in May where they said this year was going to be Quest Pro. Next year is going to be Quest 3. That's the Stinson VR. 2024 mm-hmm. is actually going to have a refresh of both of those. So you're going to see a Quest Pro 2 and a Quest 4 coming out. And I think coming up in the next couple of months, Qualcomm is going to be announcing their new chips. So the chip that behind is the Quest Pro is, is not even like a, a full upgrade. It's like the, a plus. They kind of made some adjustments so you have a little bit more RAM, but it's not really a, a full upgrade of the the next generation of the XR2. For, yeah, it's a half step. Yeah, it's like a half step. And so it's not a full upgrade. Um, I have had a chance to do the Lynx R1, which is one of the mixed reality pass-through where you do have this kind of open-ended where you can see in your peripheral vision. And my experience was that it's it like, like Scott was saying, it does feel a little bit more like the HoloLens or the Magic Leap where it's an augmented reality, but because they're doing the pass-through, they have much wider field of view. And if you compare the price of like the $1,500 of the Quest Pro to like a HoloLens uh, 2 or a Magic Leap 2, it's like twice the price. It's in the $3,000 range. And so in terms of like thinking about the long-term of developing um, augmented reality, like Meta's approach is to kind of develop from this pass-through mode of, you know, using the uh, the VR to the kind of the vision, the computer vision and AI to do the fixing of the, cause you have a distortion of for where the cameras are. Right. So you're going to basically, you know, from my experiences, I don't know how, what your experience of this was, Scott, when, when you have the cameras that are offset, then you have to kind of like do some corrections so that when you see your hands, it doesn't look like it completely distorted. Like it, like when I did the Vario, it, you have this disembodiment of the, uh, the proprioception yeah. of where you expect your body to be and what you see your body as, there's a disconnect there because of the offset of where the cameras are. And That's so, a really good question, Scott. Was it did it did it have that feeling to it? Is is there this disconnect between your astral form and your physical form, as it were? No, it felt fine. I mean, if I mean, I've used enough of these that I might have accommodations where I'm sort of like, you know, it's like, um, you know, I think you get a, I think you get used to VR sickness over time, or at least for me. Um, so like, so there are some things I kind of accommodate for, um, but I, no, it's, it seemed, it seemed usable. It didn't, I don't know how much time I'd want to spend using it. That's the interesting question. Like you know, mm. I used it 15 minutes at a time. In well, you, you can only use it for up to two hours apparently. Cause the battery life doesn't last for much longer than that. So that's yeah. Up to two hours at, at best it sounds. And, and the one to two hour estimate that they gave makes me wonder when the one kicks in. And I would think mixed reality is, is maybe a part of that. Um, mm. Yeah, and then the battery life on the controllers may be four to five hours. Uh, you know, although it's still not exactly clear from the conversations that uh, that Boz and others had on on Twitter. Yeah, they're but, being um, really cagey about that in a way that does not feel good. They obviously know the battery life of the controllers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a known battery life for these controllers as a product that's being released. I would assume it is four to five hours. Maybe it's maybe it's I damage it, control. I don't yeah. know. I think there's a part of the legitimacy, like let's say if you're playing Beat Saber versus if you're doing something that's a lot yeah. less. I mean, there's the, the controllers are computers now, so they actually have all the computer vision inside of it. So it has less occlusion, but you trade off with having less battery life. Now, what I yes. what is interesting and is- And the haptics they, too. Yes, and there's new haptics. They are selling those. And so if you want to actually try them out, you can buy them for like $300. 
and use them on their Quest 2. So they are backwards compatible. So um, I'll be curious to see, like, maybe I might, I, I'm, I'm not like at the point where I want to buy a Quest Pro. Uh, I don't, I think it's like a, a lot of money and I don't know if it's going to be significant, but I, I would consider buying the controllers just to have the experience of some of the different applications that are coming out uh, that may be taking full use of those. Things like Shapes XR, they're using the stylus to be able to do design stuff. Gravity Sketch um, was one that they were also designing. So they have some upgrades for this new capabilities that are coming in the controllers. Uh, but you could potentially get some access to that just by buying the controllers without having to spend and yeah. drop $1,500 for the Quest Pro. But I got to say, $300. But at the price of a Quest 2, yes, yeah. practically. You're, it, it's, um, you know, the controllers, I, I liked that the, they feel compact. The haptics are good. I wouldn't say that they're as good as the PlayStation VR 2. Um, but they definitely had a, like they had a rippling type of sensation. If I was painting the, the drawing had like kind of a scratchy responsiveness, which was nice. I felt like it was actually helpful for air drawing. Um, they have stylus tips on the bottom now, which is, which is trippy. Um, you know, they already have the ability to do that in work rooms to, to draw with the stylus on the back of the controller. I'm curious how useful that stylus tip will end up being in practice, but it's definitely a sign that they're, they're serious. I think to some degree about using these as work tools. And um, there's also a really clever thing that they added on the side. The angled, um, the angled edge is a pressure sensitive area for pinching. Huh. Um, so you can, they have this thing about picking up darts and throwing them or squeezing a little a stress toy. And the more I squeezed it, I was able to, um, to have different impacts. And I found that really useful like versus the kind of crab claw grip for darts in VR that I normally use. Like the, the pressure pinch felt a lot more functional. And I, I thought that was a, a very it, interesting stealth. Is that down the by controllers. the bottom? So you're kind of holding the, the so you'd be you're, holding you're, the, the controller in the in the stylus mode? Is that? No, you're, you're, you're pinching between the trigger and the angled side. Oh, weird. So it's like you're huh. like a side pinch. It's weird. I don't know how it would feel all the time, but it it's intriguing for like pinch to pick up. Yeah. And the uh, one weird thing about the cameras, I have no idea if this will be implemented, but uh, they use a Snapdragon 662. Uh, theoretically, Qualcomm had mentioned that, that you know you could use those cameras for mixed reality purposes. Um, yeah. I don't think Meta's doing that at this point, but like chip-enabled peripheral controller with cameras is interesting. Magic Leap 2 has a camera-enabled controller as well. Um, I don't know exactly more i don't know many more specifics on how that one works but um it reminded me of the magic leap 2 controller uh because i i'd seen that earlier this year but um yeah that's my question is kind of how useful the controllers will be if you're a quest 2 user uh they do promise more accurate tracking yeah i kind of feel like the whole package though going back to like the quest pro felt it felt to me and i didn't get into face tracking which felt okay but there weren't a lot of demos to show that off it felt like this this platform is also about Meta needing to advance certain technologies that it doesn't have another way to advance them through yet. So yeah, eye face tracking and I, AR because there's no AR headset yet. Given given how much we watch them like iterate on some of the software UI of the Quest platform across Quest One and Two, uh, and really advance it like we got hands we got you know refresh rates up we got all these things that that wound up these these devices feel like they evolve 
as they're out in the world, it makes me wonder if part of their R&D is just the sheer amount of data they're pulling as they perfect their AI models, as they keep on teaching the software how humans behave and are just going off a larger set. Um, uh, I got one clarifying question, and then I want to I want to check in with Todd about how he's viewing the, the Quest Pro as as a as a either a current tool for play or maybe a potential tool for play. And that's this, Scott. That Qualcomm chip that's inside the controller can it play Doom? <laughs> yes. If you break it open like a chocolate bar, it's it's in there. Okay, so we can play Doom just with the controller alone. All right. Well, if nothing I, I else, I wanted to uh, just one quick note about the face tracking is that part of the reason why it's open uh, uh, underneath is because of the cameras that need to be able to see the face for face tracking. And John Carmack did say during his talk that it will be very much similar to the hand tracking where they're going to be deploying more software updates. And so it will improve over time. But there is an additional light blocker for $50 as an accessory if you want to have more of an immersive VR experience. But from all the gamers that I saw review it, they're like, this is not a gaming uh, unit. It Don't get it for gaming because you're going to be disappointed. It's only two hours. And just from the controllers and everything, it wasn't really optimized for gaming. Like Scott said, it's much more like an augmented reality prototype development device is where I see it. And also productivity. Yeah. Plus, like, if I could add one thing about that, like, um, you know, there's also a question of how many gamer game uh, apps will even uh, update for it. You know, when you have something that's so specialized and will have a much smaller footprint, it, you know, I, I, how unless Meta is is you know bankrolling those apps to be updated, I wouldn't think it's in the interest of any games to really update. Well, they'll be backwards compatible, so you'll be able to play the games. But yeah, yep. to be able to do you can play them all. Advantage, then yeah. The the biggest yeah. Thing so then I you saw, end up was to be able to like basically do swap and like bring up uh, browsers in, in line. So if you want to open up a browser while you're working, that's the big thing that right. you can't do on a Quest 2, but you could do on a Quest Pro. So Todd, Yeah, and then I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, okay, go ahead. I, was just, I was going to want to get Todd in here. So Todd, from, from what you've heard and from what you've seen so far, uh, you know, are, are you kind of, would you concur with the guys that, and, and what the reviewers are saying that this doesn't really feel like it's going to be, a device for for gaming, or do you see anything in these technologies that they're rolling out that could that could, in the long run, uh, affect the way we play? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you know the sentiments that have already been stated, um, and you know, and and sort of, certainly as you know, somebody who covers uh, gaming, you know, I was like, oh my god, I want this new device, um, but then you know, once hearing that there is going to be an update to uh, you know the Quest. Um, you know, next year, um, at least planned, that sort of seems sort of like that's going to be mirrored, geared more toward the consumer pitch, the gaming pitch, and with more sort of gaming updates. All that being said is like, I am incredibly excited for um, pass-through um, sort of light augmented reality sort of gaming experiences and cubic sort of gaming experiences. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of potential in that space. And so that was sort of what excited me about uh, the Pro. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's if you're purely um, using this for entertainment or gaming, uh, you're better off sitting it out. So one of the things that that I've started thinking about when it comes to the role of the pro in the immersive ecosystem is I think about some of these uh, immersive theater in VR experiences that have been going around the festival circuit for a while or things like Alien Rescue, right, uh, which have been open to the public. And I could see a, a, a near-term future where the producers of these events 
once that face tracking is opened up to other platforms, uh, I think right now, like VR chat, for instance, I think, I think I saw Kent something in your feed, like they can't access it at the moment, but I assume. Yeah, there's a, the early unconformed reports that a lot of the features like eye tracking and face tracking will not be available through Oculus Link to PC VR. It'll only yeah. be available to standalone, which basically means it's a lot of the features that are on there in terms of hardware won't even be opened up for VR chat or Neos. That's as far as what's been unconfirmed and reported so far. Yeah. And and if if that remains the policy and remains completely true, that feels like cutting off their nose to spite their face because in a world where you could have performers using the pro to get a more fully fleshed out performance in a sort of asynchronous uh experience. So you have players using a quest not necessarily, you know, no, no face tracking, but they're interacting with live performers who are getting a broader range of expression, particularly as the avatars. I think we'll start, we'll open up the avatar discussion now. Uh, there's so much potential there for that kind of a asynchronous production uh, that would, a, a, not asynchronous, a, 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 what am I trying to say? Not synchronous, uh, symmetric, asymmetric production. Uh, between, you know, uh, game master characters, non-player characters, and player characters to create a more robustly immersive environment, to create more magical experiences and and a and a better sense of play, because you can have face rigging on the characters people encounter in real time, and given what they're doing with some of the. The, the the near future stuff they showed when they went up to Abrash's um, laboratory, uh, there's there's some there's some real potential there. Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's the most exciting part of this, and I, I think that's the pro part of it. Like I think that's I, I think there is a real value for this, like you said, for people who said I want to use this more for certain things, and hopefully it'll be opened up for that. Like I thought about performances certainly. Um, I also thought the flip side when I was using it, like they had a Tribe XR demo for the D, like this DJ kit where you could, you know, then see outside through with pass through. And I started to think about like, you know, could these be used? Maybe not like, you know, in your fat, not in the factory per se, but what, could you use it essentially as like a stage manager in an immersive theater experience? Like, could you be using kind of a virtual light board or could you be using these as kind of live um, control sets when you're in physical spaces? Um, and, and I think, I just think there's so much stuff to explore with both eye and face tracking and with um, augmented reality on a headset that there are so few devices that have been um, doing that, that I think that, that this could be with the, the ecosystem that Meta does have, it, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities. I mean, I think about the fact that, um, you know, Niantic had a partnership with Microsoft to look at uh, Pokemon Go on, or Pokemon on HoloLens you know, because there's just so few AR headsets that um, I think anyway, or Snapchat, you know, Snap Spectacles that only have like a 15, 30 minute battery life. So I think anything that you can use to start prototyping, field testing, basically, I, I think of the Quest Pro as like a dev kit mm -hmm. where people can start building experiences for those future devices to come or start getting, getting um, maybe not even to build their, the algorithms possibly, but also just to get your sea legs, understanding what you could do. 
Speaking yeah, of legs, <laughs> avatars. <laughs> uh, Kent, I know you're excited to talk about where the avatars are going, uh, both in the uh, in like the near and the in the long term. So uh, t- take yeah. take us down a, a lengthy hallway that we can actually walk through now that we're, we're going to be granted yeah. legs soon enough. I think the avatars are one of the areas that you'll see Meta starting to bring some of the technology that they're developing for VR, but into their other contexts. So for Instagram and for these other kind of like bitmoji type of characters that you'll see on Instagram. And But you'll be able to, what they were saying was basically having this vision of having an ability to buy avatar goods that can go across all their different platforms. Um, but again, I think this goes back to this challenge of like the stuff they're building internally, but then also facilitating open ecosystems. Just an example with the face tracking and eye tracking, I imagine that that's going to be turned on first in Horizon Worlds, which is their own uh, first party um, app that they have control over. And they were talking a lot more about privacy. I've been covering privacy a lot. And I think that um, I'm, I'm wondering if there might be some ethics washing happening in terms of like telling a story of privacy, but really the functional outcome is that it's really only their own first party apps are going to have access to some of the technology. So, you know, I'll be very curious to see if, say, like, Rec Room or VRChat have access to some of the different um, eye tracking technologies or facial tracking, or if they'll try to say, well, um, it's going to be locked down because of various privacy concerns. But just in general, uh, a lot of the stuff that they're saying around the avatar stuff is like on the one hand, they said that the the forward future looking of the Kodak avatars, which are super photorealistic and kind of creepy and scary on some degree. But then on the other end, we're at the where we're at now, which is like the kind of more of a cartoon stylized Pixar style um, in with these high fidelity emotional expressions and eye tracking, which, um, it, you know, it's it's kind of like they're giving us a far future, but also like where we're at right now. And I, I just want to sort of point out that, you know, the avatar area is the one area where Meta is going to be able to potentially leverage some of this work across some of their other uh, platforms that they already have. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into Kodak for a second, but Scott, you had something. Yeah, I was going to say that um, they are opening up to other apps. The um, The way they talked about it was that it's it's off by default, which is interesting on the Quest Pro. You turn it on for each app that asks uh, permission, but and they and they but they did kind of punt on saying that like you know they they made a, a big statement about everything being encrypted on device and then the uh, data being erased over time. But we asked questions about, you know, what about a enterprise or what, you know, or some other app that wants to tap into permissions and, you know, what, how, I guess it's similar to, to data from any sort of tracker you might have. Like, how would that be used? It, it's a little unclear, even, even if it is encrypted on device, like what other things could, could pass through um, or how could it be utilized? But the other interesting thing I want to note about the, the eye and face tracking surprised me is how they, they did seem to stop maybe not on the privacy part, but on the, um, the effectiveness of it. You know, like there was a lot of foveated rendering going on with the PlayStation VR 2 and on almost every game I demoed. Mm. Uh, no foveated rendering on the, the Quest Pro. And per Zuckerberg or, or Boz and others, they, they said that it, it was kind of a, not, not the slam dunk you think it would be because of the trade-offs in battery life and, and performance, which makes me wonder, would that only be turned on when it's tethered? And that goes back to your question about Link. Why not optimize those eye tracking features when you have link or more powerful tethering capabilities. Cause it sounds like uh, those, those may be few and farther between than, than we might be expecting. And there's a little bit where you feel like we we keep on hitting up against the physics problems here and just that balance of energy use, heat, power, weight, 
all of that yeah. stuff. Like the, these are much bigger boulders to push than everyone wants them to be. And, and, we're, and the, the drive to just get cool stuff onto people's faces is maybe driving everyone a little, a little nutty because there are so many good experiences you can have. You don't need to be constantly pushing the envelope, but in a world where your, your major target for your communications are not the consumers, but are the stock market. And you want to try and drive that stock market up. They only care about potential down the road. So uh, it's, it, it feels like a constant tightrope being walked while an actual market needs to be developed. If this stuff is going to truly be profitable. Um, I did. Um, I did try those avatars, by the way, the, the codec avatars at, at Meta's labs. Who did you get it, to drive? We, did they make one for you or did you get to drive somebody? Oh, no, I got to talk. Uh, I, t- I got to talk uh, across the void to, to others. So they had a little avatar among some of the future research demos, which are ones they've already announced for the most part, they were a quartet of demos that I wrote about um, on the site. There's a video about it, but um, Codec Avatars 2.0. Um, so I got to actually try that out. It was it, similar to the YouTube video with a uh, uh, guy named Jason at Pittsburgh um, had led led the uh, conversation with me. It was like a, I would equate it to a candlelit, uh, eerily real PlayStation Five, you know, like cutscene type thing come huh. real. Like it's it's very compelling and it started to feel very real. But it also had an element of the uncanny, and but I, I got kind of very close, and I felt like I was in this intimate conversation because it's not, you know, it's kind of sim- lit in a void is how it feels. So it's you feel like you're in this intimate little closet space with the person. And then I tried Instant Codec um, avatars, which were the phone scan one that uh, Abarsha talked about on stage, which is a you know you get a phone scan to kind of shortcut it and make it a little more powerful. It looked good, but it's frozen in space. You know, I think. Um, mm. The, the head being kind of glued to a to a pedestal is what it felt like, <laughs> and again the haunted mansion feel where yeah. um, the face <laughs> was very expressive. But if I were to but if I were to more uncanny, and if I was to talk to someone like that for a while, I'd go, "Why isn't your head moving that much? You're like, do you do you have a what's going on there?" Um, There's always room for okay? one more, Scott. Yeah, and then they had that 3D the the, the room scanned um, full body. Per, it was really a scan of an actor who who had been scanned ahead of time. And they just showed some of the digital clothing being draped um, on that, which which looked good, but it was a non-interactive demo. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, two, two quick points I want to make. One is that, again, a lot of this hardware stuff, um, as long as it's being delivered on the platform, they're going to be able to, over time, improve things via software. So things that may not be turned on now, they may turn on later, or they might, may not turn on because of a, of, of a privacy argument that they're making. Um, and the other thing, just in terms of the privacy, is that, um, by saying that that's encrypted, that's really focusing it as like making sure that people don't have access to the data to be able to know what your identity is. But there's this whole other realm of inferring information. And so, as far as I can tell, as long as they do real-time inferences, then that's a whole another layer of being able to kind of drive utility and information out of that data from both the eye tracking and the facial tracking, be able to do real-time sentiment analysis and what you're paying attention to so those kind of inferences is something that's not really covered in privacy law right now. And so some of the arguments they make doesn't necessarily fully cover the full privacy implications of these new technologies. Right. Like a company seeing if you're paying attention or where you're, you know, looking at a heat map of your gaze uh, in a meeting or something. It feels like, you know, aside from the fact that we just need 
savvier legal models to deal with these issues that at the end of the day, it's going to be a lot about retention of that information. Like what can a company hold on to after it's had an interaction with you and how long they can hold it or which things they're allowed to hold. And, and maybe that even spills into reality a company, if you were to walk into a store, walk into a bank, like if I walk into an Amazon Fresh or whatever they're calling Amazon Go and they've got the cameras on me, you know, they can track all the information as well. How long can they hold on to it? Right now, probably, I imagine forever, they can know exactly what I'm interested in and then suddenly start sending me ads. You know, it's like, you were lingering in the Star Wars toy aisle. It's like, of course I was. It's me. Like, way to go, guys. You already knew that. But it's like, oh, you were really checking out the kumquats today. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, it was, I'm kumquat curious. Um, <laughs> before, since we're just about the end of the hour, uh, and I promised you guys only about an hour uh, of having to deal with me. Um, uh, one final question. Uh, and it's it's not about the price per se, uh, but do you think that this event they've had this week, uh, particularly because this is their big temple for at least the next few months, this is a major product rollout that they've got going on, do you think they've positioned them, themselves and the pro well in terms of who this is for and where it fits in their overall plan? Or have you seen and do you, do you feel that there's more ambiguity and questions than answers now that this is out in the world? Uh, Todd, we'll, we'll take it to you and then Kenton and Scott. Oh, yeah, um, I don't want to start, but um, I would say, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't had a hand-on uh, experience with it, but I, you know, based on the presentation, I, I do think they, you know, they did present it well as a productivity sort of device, a work-oriented device. Um, I think my question is if that market exists. Mm. Yeah, straight up, straight up. Does that market exist? Kent, how about you? How, how do you feel like they've they've done what they needed to do this week? Well, I feel like that the it's an open question as to whether or not the Quest Pro is going to find enough utility. Um, I feel like there's a lot of exciting things with eye tracking and facial tracking and the mixed reality modes that. In terms of like the future of developing augmented reality devices, this is going to be probably one of the best apps out there, best piece of hardware out there to do that. In terms of finding a market to solve problems in the enterprise, I think their partnerships with like Accenture and Microsoft will probably drive a lot of that. And maybe this is kind of like a thing that I don't have much insight into how that's going to go. But I guess in terms of a final thought, the one thing I just wanted to also point out that they showed was the Control Labs neural interface things, which I think is personally some of the most exciting work in terms of, you know, being able to basically control technology just by thinking about an intention to move. So being able to sort of uh, isolate down to an individual motor neuron. I had a chance to talk to one of the directors of the motor neural interfaces, Thomas Reardon from Control Labs. And yeah, he told me that in order, you know, that's for me at least, and they started to show some demos, that's kind of like the future of where this is all going is like the whole new paradigm where you're actually you're kind of just thinking about moving, and that the that thought is able to be detected by the these control lab EMG devices. And for that, that's so mind blowing. And so at, for me, I see this in the long term over the next like five to ten years. And so it's just like an incremental step. And may, and people may not know what that full trajectory is, but by looking at some of those technologies where things are going, um, moving from two D to three D is such a huge shift. And that this is one incremental step on that larger path. And so. But in the short term, how much they'll find success and 
for me, the battery life is probably the biggest question. But other than that, um, it'll be up to the market and the use cases to decide. Um, and so we'll kind of wait and see. Scott, before before giving you the the did they market this right? Uh, did you get to see any of the the EMG uh, wristband action while you were on your on your tours? Yeah, several times. So I I saw a lot of stuff. You should watch the video, read the article, definitely and seen it. But I can spend a lot of time talking about it. The one thing I didn't get to do is actually use them myself, and I think that was telling mm. because all the other demos we did get to experience. I got to try really realistic spatial audio that they had. Uh, um, that talked about back in 2020, you know, the avatars, um, a new 3D scanning um, type of technology, which looked really good. They scanned my shoe and they also showed some pre-scan, like per the presentation, I got to look at the fuzzy teddy bear and the cacti, which looked really good um, for 3D scanned objects, although they were pre-prepared. And the EMG, yeah, Thomas Reardon was, when I went to the Reality Labs research, Thomas Reardon led us on the demos. Michael Abrash, I got to speak to, Mark Zuckerberg was there and, and Boz. And, um, it started. Mark Zuckerberg uh, demoed the, uh, the the wristband for a few minutes in front of us, and we were sitting there watching him do uh, the version of what he was doing on uh, in the presentation. And um, it, it looked, having talked to Abrash about this before, um, you know, it, it, and seen this, it, it kind of looks like little thumb movements, little pinches, or little little things, kind of like an air mouse or something. Um, and he was joking about how it almost looked, you know, nearly invisible. The other demo that we saw were two researchers who had spent more time practicing with this and were playing the game that they showed. This is what Michael Abrash was showing in the presentation, that um, they were able to eventually train down and move their hands less and less so that they were only activating apparently one motor neuron. Mm. And so as we watched them sitting at a table, like a, like a science fair, we saw uh, basically no movement. And I tried, not this, but I tried another uh, neural input, neural input wristband after one CES where, where somebody let me try a little bit of some of the gestures and motions enough to get it. I think a sense that how these types of inputs work, but it's, it's fascinating. What's interesting to me is that, and I asked about this as well, is it seems to me to be being positioned as a whole new interface for everything, ideally first for smart glasses, and then maybe for VR, maybe for all things in the world. In a, in a time frame about five to six years from now, one will start finally seeing it arrive. And my question was, is it, are we going to be ramping up through other algorithms to what, you know, other interfaces that we recognize, or are we learning a whole new thing at that point? Because they talked about co-adaptation, right. um, co-adaptive learning was what Michael Labrush was talking about. The idea that machines and people will coexist, and that's already happening with a lot of other AI. That's a lot of interfaces, I think, to some degree use elements of that, I, th I think. And, but how much is this an intuitive process to learn? They made it sound like it learns from the way you learn or use things and it gets better and knows how you move. But to get to the point where that's intuitive, that's a big leap. You know, that's, that's everything. And so I don't know if that's, I don't, I need to see that proven or I need to use it to know that. Yeah. Um, like I started so thinking I think about, fascinating you know, I started thinking about like playing a game and like what in time, like the, the game, you know, learns how I do a particular combination and, and then can just read the impulse based off, you know, what I'm thinking at my hands. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like th th that sounds fascinating and cool. Uh, but, but is it even, <laughs> is it even possible? And does it, there's always also the question is like, does it actually solve 
any problems, right? Like, does does it actually make things better, or is it just a cool thing to do? And and sometimes with this stuff, it, it's just a cool thing to do. I tried yeah. NextMind, which was that one that got acquired by Snap. That was the um, you know, it, it sits on the back of your head and looks at um, kind of coded areas in VR. So it's it it's using your op, it kind of like optical recognition for you know, but using um, you know, recognizing you know where your neurons are firing in the back of your head. Um, and these types of technologies are, are fascinating. I think that the wrist stuff has, yeah, has like, I mean, I think about things like the Apple watch or other watches and how is this stuff going to start feeling like an interface and when's Meta going to make a watch that does this? It, it intuitively makes so much sense for the future of where things are going, but I think there's such a leap to come with how you get from the controllers to that, um, that I'm really curious to see like when that starts. Well, the, so, the Alex Heath did a report in April saying that um, in 2022 was going to be Meta's smartwatch one and then 2023 smartwatch two and then 2024 was going to be the smartwatch three with the EMG XR input. So, but we're already into 2022 and we obviously didn't see a watch. And so that may have slipped for a variety of reasons, but it, they were basically saying within their third iteration of their smartwatches, what they were showing now is what Alex Heath reported back in April for when that technology would start to be in a consumer device, but it would take three iterations to get to what they showed at this uh, connect today, like uh, this past week into an actual consumer device. And so it's a pretty far out, even in, if they were to take the optimized path, because they're imagining this as an input for AR. And in order to do that, they have like their AR roadmap and then their smartwatch roadmap as well. So the predictions, the predictions whiffed, uh, and, and maybe, maybe the, maybe the structure of the roadmap is still there, but just the, the, yeah. the time what, isn't happening, but Scott, to bring it back to, oh, go for it. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. I, I was going to say in one response to that too, I think what's interesting is that like, you know, you think about the arrival of neural inputs is one thing, but I think, I think the path is more of a, a, a slow melt, you know, the quest Two adopted some AR elements and the, and you're going to see quest pro have it. You know, the point is, I think by the time I would imagine the time you get to such a device, you've kind of already arrived. And I, I, I wonder if that'll be the case for them between, you know, other types of ways that, that AI um, and other types of inputs could start to approach those types of gestures. I mean, like some things like Apple Watch has some accessibility related gestures already. It doesn't have neural inputs. Um, you could get to some of those things, approach them. And then by the time you get to the neural input wristbands, you have a familiarity, but it just becomes better. That I, I feel like that's the way it needs to go. I, I think you're dead on right on that. Let's snap to the to the final question though. Uh, did they do this week all all the future stuff being what it is, and it's all very exciting for this Quest Pro and for this year ahead for them? Do you think they did what they needed to do, or uh, in terms of making the current lineup a success, or is is this really you know a, a looking in the future kind of moment for them? Feel, feels like a half step, and I think that that literally to the XR two plus, it's a half step. You know, I think this is. I think the problem with the presentation is that it's a needed step. Um, I think it's a it's an it's an important step, but for all the people that have Quest twos, and like I had people who were asking me, you know, like what you know, does this like the games? You know, are my kids going to be able to play games on this? Or like, you know, does it do any other types of games? There's a disconnect. You know, there, there's an existing platform out there that does not resemble this the way they talked about it, and so I wonder if in the spring they're going to like maybe they need to address Quest three. It's like and and 
like what um you know like we just said before the chipset thing is it's kind of like a like a a refinement at the end of the line it feels like there's there are bigger changes to come certainly by the time apple enters the space and then others um it's going to be rapidly moving and so uh i i just it'd be interesting to see how they address that because this this is a half step pro version with with big changes but two years after the quest 2 and it's an unusual staggering there yeah yeah well, I, would, I would oh sorry i would, I would oh, just yeah, go I'm, back to what the information reported back in may 2nd 2022 would this is the quest pro next year uh and bradley brad lynch on sadly it's bradley on youtube has been reporting leaks and so he was already reporting leaks and that and kind of estimating for next year's connect as being the stenson quest 3 and then the next year 2024 like a refresh of both potentially of both the, the quest pro 2 and the quest 4 so we're seeing at this moment like a fracturing of both the high end and then we're going to be going back to the, the consumer device but then kind of refreshing both and so they're kind of coming at a, at two different angles and so we'll see we'll see if it is successful yeah. and if it's not then they'll probably just stick with the consumer end well i, I here's here's the, the presentation oh go for it oh sorry I was going to say, one presentation they showed us, they showed the, the two lines continuing and the dots were staggered. I don't know if that's an indication that that's going to be the way the map goes, but like, you know, I'm curious when they do the pro and the consumer, you know, w- will it be kind of like the iPad and iPad pro or something, or, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, how are they going to talk about those and will there be two different events for them? Well, and, and this is the thing at the end of the day, uh, and, and, and this is where I think we'll leave it off on is... I don't think that the strategy is a bad one to have this pro device aimed at enterprise, aimed at creators, testing out new technology for the people who are, you know, super enthusiasts who just got to have the latest and the greatest. But the fact that they didn't communicate a reminder that, oh, yes, the next consumer headset, the three will be out next year, like that is still going to be a thing that they didn't communicate that in this week's event very clearly shows that yes they don't want to cannibalize any of their sales they don't want to prevent someone and from buying a pro if they wouldn't wouldn't maybe jump in because oh i'll wait for the three but i think they may have undermined themselves a little bit by not making it very clear who who these things are for and differentiating those because i think it leaves a lot of people confused as to why there aren't more games and and is this something for me to purchase for my kids or me to purchase for myself self if i'm not developing and i think that will that's something i think they can't keep doing going forward if they want to make both of these devices successful that's just ben, ben thompson uh interviewed mark zuckerberg and satya Nadella um yesterday uh, where the story went up yesterday and, and that was where zuckerberg actually mentioned the quest 3 and said that the price is going to be somewhere around 300 400 500 which was helpful. I would have, yeah, I would have liked that on stage, <laughs> but like, would have been good. Um, cause it's helpful because exactly going to the holiday season. That's why I've been trying to guide people. It's like, you might want to wait because it, it does sound like the price is going to be aimed to be similar. And that's kind of a subsidized price that they've been getting at at that point, which is like similar to bike dance and, um, the Pico four. That's like, you know, maybe not the true price of what such a device might cost, but it won't be $1,500 either. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you all for hopping on the pod today and uh, always good to talk with you. And I know I'm going to be touching base with you all before the year ends. We'll, we'll draw 
us back in, in some configuration to chat some more. Uh, going down the line, Scott, where can folks find you on the internet? Um, you can find me at JetScott on Twitter and also uh, at CNET. Kent, where can they find you? Uh, I'm at VoicesOfVR.com and uh, where you can find podcasts as well as on at Kent Bai on Twitter. And Todd? Um, over at the LATimes.com uh, for uh, the game stuff. And then uh, Twitter is just Todd Martins. All right. Once again, thank you all. And uh, always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Once again, I want to thank Scott Todd, and of course, Kent, for being our guests on the show today. Uh, You just heard where you could find them on the internet. I encourage you to do exactly that. And indeed, if you want to see the videos, go check out what Scott got up to over at CNET. Lots and lots and lots of material out there if you want to dive a bit deeper this week. Um, This is a big one. Uh, This is a long episode, so not going to go on any kind of ranty thing. Uh, just want to point out a few uh, program notes coming up. Uh, I am taking my break, uh, my annual birthday break, uh, starting on the 20th. I will be out, uh, but you will get a podcast. Uh, there, there might be a call sheet that goes in earlier in the week. Uh, it was thin this week, so we didn't put a call sheet out, uh, saving up like the one thing we've got to go out next week. Um, assuming that there's more, uh, as always, if, if you really want to see what's going on, uh, in real time, uh, hang out on the no pro discord and check out the call sheet and jobs boards channels in there. People post in there on the regular. It's actually the most popping off spot because people are always looking for help. And you can sometimes find those listings as well. People will drop them in the everything immersive Facebook group. You might also know, notice if you're part of the Everything Immersive Facebook group, we are now putting the listings that come out uh, into Everything Immersive are now also appearing on the Facebook group, provided that a showrunner hasn't already put up their own listing for their show. Um, we, we try and make sure that that group is not a spam fest, which Facebook can be. Uh, so we, we curate it um, not not heavily, but we, we do, we do curate it so that there aren't duplicates, right. And, or things that are wildly off topic, you know, some bare bones really, uh, which I think continues to make it useful. And there's like 12,000 members of the group, um, which, uh, I, I, I wish there were 12,000 backers of the podcast. Uh, anyway, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Um, gosh, what else is there? Uh, digs coming up. Um, there may be a rundown during the week that I'm off. Cause it's going to go from the 20th to about the 26th is when I'm going to come back. If Patrick's got the bandwidth, there'll be a rundown. If not, the rundown may come out a little bit later. And then, uh, the very next week I'll be off to the dig. So, uh, there'll keep on being a podcast for the next two Fridays, but we will take a bye week uh, for the fourth, because I'll be in Denver and I won't have all my equipment and I'll be running around anyway. And on that day, I'll, we'll be doing the dig. So no podcast on November 4th, but you shouldn't see too much of a disruption, uh, overall. Uh, also no newsletter that weekend, but we will come out the next week, uh, with even more, uh, that's it for now. That's that's kind of all there is or all one needs. So let's do 
the credits. Associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Shivana Lachlan for voicing our intro. And this podcast, uh, you know, um, written, hosted, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the problems are my fault. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. Thank you.